0: So we are uh, going to look at Genesis 19 this morning. Genesis 19. So I want to read down to verse 29. Uh, We'll look at the the rest of the chapter next week, God willing. But uh, Genesis 19, verse 1. You remember that... uh, uh, Abram has had a meeting with God. Uh, three men have appeared in chapter eighteen, and uh, it's clear that God is present in the three men indeed um, may have been um, one of them as a manifestation uh, of God, a theophany and then two angels go off to Sodom as we saw last week and uh, we pick up the story here in verse 19 oh, sorry, chapter 19 verse one. And entered his house, and he made them a feast, and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, "'Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city.' But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought, brought them out, one said, "'Escape for your life!' Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords! Behold, your servant servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. For it is not, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor, also that you, I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. And all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards the land of the valley. And he looked and behold the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived had lived. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word, thanking you for it, and we pray for understanding of it. Help us search our hearts, we pray. Help us to worship you all the more, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at this uh, chapter 18, where Abraham entertains these three men who appear suddenly before him uh, at his tent, and it turned out, of course, that that was a visitation from the Lord, um, uh, where he was, where the Lord promised Abraham again that, uh, that he would have a son this time next year, and uh, not to doubt. Uh, God's promise and we learned of course that, that that's two out of those three men they, they turn out to be angels who are going on to Sodom to investigate the sins that have come to the attention of the Lord um, and and Abraham has that period where he he pleads with God and he begins with 50 men if, if you find 50 righteous people in, in the city will you not spare it and the Lord says yes I will and kind of Abraham begins to push a bit harder. And he says, what about 45? Yes, I'll not destroy the city. Or 40, yes, I'll not destroy the city. And so on, down, down to 10. If I find 10 righteous people in the city, I will not destroy it. And at that point, the Lord leaves Abraham. And uh, you may remember, of course, that, that Lot, his nephew is actually in that area, um, in the city. Uh, Remember that Lot and Abraham separated in chapter 13 because uh, they had flocks and uh, their flocks were so great that they couldn't stay in the same place, so they had to go uh, into different regions. And Remember Lot looked from the hills and he looked down to the Jordan Valley and he saw that it was fertile and beautiful and he thought, I'm going to go there. And Abraham said, wherever you go, I'll go the opposite direction. And so Abraham goes off to Canaan And uh, Lot goes off into the the Jordan Valley, probably to the south, near where the Dead Sea today is. And it seems that he is settled in Sodom. And uh, both men, of course, are... uh, Well, let me... uh, So this, this chapter, chapter 19, is mostly about Lot, although... Abraham makes a, a small appearance towards the end of the passage that we read, but he is uh, he's simply an observer of what God is doing uh, when he comes in judgment and overthrows the city. Um, now, there are, some, there are actually some similarities between 18 and 19, chapters 18 and 19. Uh, the similarities are that both Lot and Abraham are, as it were, visited by the Lord, Um, The action takes place at their respective houses. Uh, Abraham's tent in chapter 18. Lot's house with the wooden doors and everything in chapter 19. And and both are righteous men. Uh, Abraham, remember, is counted as righteous through his faith in God's promise in chapter 15, verse 6. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. And Lot... Though it's not mentioned in in Genesis, it is mentioned in in 2 Peter, chapter 2, where Lot is described as righteous Lot. So there's something about Lot that uh, is in the background here. He too is righteous by faith. He trusts God. He believes in God. He trusts in God's promises, uh, no doubt. But there are important differences between these two occasions, chapter 18 and chapter 19, the very fact that Abraham is sitting in a tent tells you something about Abraham's uh, life. That he is a pilgrim. That he's traveling. He hasn't settled anywhere. He doesn't belong where he is. And that's how he's described in Hebrews chapter 11. You know that great uh, list of men of, and women of faith. But Abraham's described as a man looking for a better country. He's a pilgrim, traveling. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, by the way. uh, To to show that the church is a pilgrim people. uh, Under Christ as the mediator and head of this new covenant. But Abraham is, is looking forward to a better country. So he's not settled. Whereas Lot, on the other hand, has settled in this world of, this land of worldly plump promise. He's put his roots down. He is settling. Um, he may trust God, but he seems to be making compromises with the world. And even when he's rescued, I wonder if you noticed, he still wants to kind of negotiate his rescue. He's, still, he's thankful for being rescued, but he's saying, can you just do this instead? Well, it's kind of cheeky, isn't it? <laughs> But that's the way he is. He wants to go to another city, to Zoar. He doesn't want to go to the hills. He wants another place to settle. God, in his wisdom, grants it. So there's a number of lessons, I think, here for us as, as a pilgrim people. Uh, as we look at Lot. And the first one, I think, is this. how, how God To see how God hates sin. He really hates sin. Sin is an offence against God's person. All sinners, even the smallest sins, they're an offence against God's person. You may remember David, uh, King David, and the af- uh, David sinned. Remember with Bathsheba, he's, he's lounging around in his pyjamas, and uh, you know he. He looks out and he sees this beautiful woman. And because he's the king, he can have what he wants. And he goes and takes Bathsheba. And she conceives and bears a child. And is expecting a child. And he tries David tries to cover up the sin. By first of all trying to get Uriah to come and back from the battlefield. And come and come and sleep with his wife. And perhaps we can pass it off as his child. And then when he refuses to do so... Uh, he sends Uriah back to the battle, but to the hottest part of the battle, so that he, the likelihood of him being killed is great. There, are, there is murderous intent in there to cover up another sin. When finally David is made aware of his sin, and he becomes, uh, he comes before God. He records that in Psalm 51. And what does he say about his sin? He says, "Against you, and you." Only have I sinned. All sin is sin against God. Even though there are consequences for other people, all sin is sin against God. And Psalm ninety Isaiah fifty nine verse two tells us great evangelistic verse, but that sin, that practice of sinning, separates people from God. It creates a barrier between you and God. A, an ungulfable bridge that you cannot get, a chasm that you cannot get across. That sin disrupts fellowship with God. That's true of a believer as well. That you may have a relationship with God, but your sin disrupts the fellowship with God. And God, as it were, holds back his blessing from you. Because of your continuing sin, and your holding on to sin, and your cherishing sin in your heart. And in the end, of course, persistent sin, that lack of fellowship, that withdrawal of blessing, in some people is solidified into eternal separation, eternal judgment, the ultimate judgment of God. Now, sometimes in the in the in the wisdom and perfect timing timing of God that eternal judgment is brought forward into history so that he acts in time to bring what seems to us like an untimely death see that in in the Bible in various places think of Think of the prophets of Baal frantically worshipping their gods before Elijah. And fire comes down from heaven and destroys them and the altar. Or think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, the New Testament, lying to God's Spirit and they are cut down and die instantly. Sometimes God comes in temporal judgment to take somebody away. And here we have Sodom and Gomorrah where the sins of that city have come to the attention of God. Of course, the Bible speaks anthropomorphically. It speaks in ways that we understand it. Because God knows all, all the sins of all human beings. But the sins... Come before God. How do they come? They come because of the outcry caused by sin. And this is not the the righteous pointing at all the sins of of the unrighteous. This is anybody who is suffering, who cries out to heaven. Maybe to a God they don't even believe in, but they cry out to heaven. God hears. Such cries of suffering at the hands of sinful people. What were the sins? Were they abusing the peasants of the surrounding regions who'd come to trade at the city gates just to make a living? Were the men of the city abusing men and women sexually It's notable that in this story, that it's the men of the city who figure in the sinful behavior that unfolds. Do this city have a culture of sexual abuse? The cries go up to heaven. Whatever the sins were, God hears the cry that comes up. God hears when the natural thing for people to do is to pray and to cry out to God. And people do pray. A while back I remember a report of a, a young journalist, a 22-year-old female journalist who was reporting on a, a, a protest that was happening in a Middle Eastern country. And uh, the atmosphere was jubilant amongst the crowd. It was mostly men in the crowd. The atmosphere was jubilant. And here was this young woman reporting and recording and documenting. And that suddenly this woman discovered that the, the mood around her in her immediate circuit environment changed as the men began to subject her to horrific sexual abuse, stripping her naked. Thankfully, she escaped with her life. But in the moment of greatest danger, she was saying out loud, please God, make it stop. And she writes in her report about this. I'm not religious, but at times of desperation, we all feel compelled to appeal to some higher power to save us. It's human nature. There's more truth to that than she realized, I think. We're made in the image of God, made for relationship with God. And why is it people turn to God? Because that's their disposition. God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. So people's cries go up to God with all their sins and all their suffering. And The warning in this passage for us is that God hates sin. God hears the outcry against it and he will act in judgment on all sin. So that's the first thing, God hates sin. Secondly, let's, let's just think about the depravity of the culture. Uh, Of Sodom, perhaps, in the first instance. But it helps us to think about the depravity of the culture around us. And the depravity of Sodom is shown in the most sordid way. These two angels come to Sodom and decide to stay the night in the town square. Uh, They are quite insistent about it initially. And it's interesting because, of course, these angels have come to see for themselves through created eyes. uh, the, uh, The sins that people are crying out against. They want to see what's going on. What better place or time to see it than in the city centre after darkness has fallen? That's true of any city, isn't it? On occasion it's you get you travel through the city centre or the town centre on a Friday or Saturday night or Sunday night and you see the most depraved activity going on. But Lot is so insistent that these two men come to him, to his house, that they relent and go to his house. Uh, he pressed them strongly. I suppose Lot knew that it was dangerous to be in the square at night. But the presence in the city of these foreigners did not go unnoticed. And so, uh, words spread. And so, before Bedtime, a crowd gathers outside Lot's house. Incidentally, a crowd of men. Men of Sodom. Men who are crying out to the last man. Men. What do they want? Well, they want to know these visitors. It's a strange word that is used in verse 5. We want to know them. That's what the Hebrew says. We want to know them. And of course the word know has a range of meanings. What did he mean? Do they mean we want to socialize with you? We want to have a chat and get to know you? Uh, well, from what unfolds, clearly that's not what they want to do. Uh, another option that commentators have suggested is that uh, they want to just merely check their identity. Uh, rather like today, checking passports or travel documentation or something. Um, these men are outsiders, are they spies maybe that 's what this commentator suggests. Sounds plausible, but it really doesn 't fit the context. Now, what unfolds as we shall see makes it clear that that 's not what 's intended. There is a third option it 's a Hebraic euphemism for having sex with them. and we find that in other parts of scripture. Uh, so, for example, Genesis chapter four. Remember, Adam, um, Adam knew Eve, and, cons- and Seth was born. Um, I don't think Adam was checking Eve's passport or documentation. <laughs> um, no, they were having intercourse together, conceiving a child, sleeping with, having sex with. Or the same is true of Elkanah and Hannah in one Samuel chapter one. Hannah, remember cried out to God for a child and God answered that prayer and Elkanah knew Hannah. And so Samuel was born. So it means having sex in those those cases. And that's what it means here in Genesis chapter 19. And we can see that clearly because, uh, because when Lot tries to persuade the crowd not to do this, his alternative, and this shocks us, but his alternative is, say, well have my daughters instead. You can know them not checking out their documentation because they know who they are. (laughs) You can know them. So there's a crowd gathering in the dark and they want to engage in the most sordid and abusive of activities, no doubt coercive, male-on-male sexual activity. See, this is a culture that has drifted so far from its creator. Where now, anything goes. And when you have a culture like that, it is also a culture that does not care about people as they really are. As people made in the image of God. Rather, it sees people as a means of satisfying personal desires and passions, regardless of human cost. And friends, We may not recognize these manifestations in in leafy solihull. But it is the destination of any culture that turns its back on God. And in the last 20 or 30 years, we have seen faster social change than there has ever been in the history of the West. Where at every turn, God's word is erased from life. And people indulge in the most sordid activities, sinful activities. And is it any surprise that we have a continual, continual growth in social problems, especially perhaps amongst society's children, who increasingly live lives of heightened anxiety and sense of dislocation? From parents, from the world, even from themselves. What a mess. A culture that's in nose depravity. This is the culture we live in. Here's the next thing to consider. How, how such a culture can dull piety, can dull Christian witness. Um, God's people, you see, still have to live amongst the world that's fallen. People who make up the culture around us. Can God's people stand and be influential and effective in such an alien culture? And the overwhelming testimony of the Bible is, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Consider the examples. Joseph, a godly man sold into slavery in a pagan culture. But through the providence of God rose to a position of power and influence. In many ways saved Egypt. Yet able to do so without compromise. Remaining faithful to God in spite of the many temptations he faced. Or think of Daniel. Taken captive in that first wave of captivity. Off to Babylon. Where they tried to brainwash Daniel and his friends into the Babylonian ways, but he and his friends remained faithful to God. And In spite of many trying times, Daniel rose to a position of power and authority in the Babylonian Empire and in the Persian Empire. So what about Lot then? Did he stand as a testimony to faithfulness in the midst of a depraved culture? Well Clearly, Lot has become a man of standing in Sodom. He is, uh, when we meet him, he's sitting at the gate of the city. Now, that may pass us by, but it's actually a significant place. It's a place where business is done. It's a place where elders of the city congregate. Um, it's where they sit, discuss, and resolve the issues of the day and do business together. And Lot, in, in some sense, seems to have made it in, in Sodom. And remember that he is, he is righteous, Lot. And righteousness is not necessarily somebody who has a an impeccable life. Abram was righteous even though he had uh, some of the aspects of his life were morally questionable. But Abram walked with God by faith. And that's the Bible's definition of, of righteousness. Walking with God by faith. So when Lot is described as righteous, he's a man of faith and trust in the same God. And we Perhaps we can see that to an extent in the way that he offers hospitality to his visitors, to the strangers. Yet there are evidences of spiritual weakness. A serious and obvious one is is how willing he is to offer his young daughters to the crowd. It's pretty shocking to us. It's hard to believe that such a thing could happen. Especially for a man who is... In relationship to God, but there it is. There it is in Scripture. Lot well, seems to have a kind of blind spot to this sin as he offers his daughters up. And it's a, to us, it's an appalling blind spot, and yet it is a blind spot for him. What about the rest of us then? With our many, many lesser sins. We have blind spots to sins in our lives. We don't even realise our sins, we just do it and we don't even think about it. Who knows? What could happen to any one of us? Especially when we're put into extreme circumstances. And there are there are more subtle indications of his weakness and lack of spiritual stature. Firstly, he's he's unable to influence the crowd. You think a man of standing might be able to have some influence if he is a man of substance in the community. And yet, he cannot persuade them to desist from their sinful desires. In fact, they revert to the fact that he is, he's actually a foreigner. Verse 9, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. There's a sense in which Lot is merely tolerated not honoured. Here's another way that shows his weakness. The reaction of his prospective sons-in-law. Lot goes to warn them of the, the coming judgment. And they don't take him seriously. You know, I hope you young men, when you have the chance to deal with a, a prospective father-in-law, you treat him with honour. <laughs> don't just Dismiss him. This is what these these fools do. They just joke. And Lot, you see, is a man of weak character to whom those near him do not pay attention. Friends, I think this is an interesting picture that is replicated in the church today. That a man man or woman who's a Christian has a relationship with God and is saved, but is weak in character. God's worked character. Someone who is, the church is full of people who have lived their lives in such a way that they do not command the respect of their family. The family doesn't listen to them. Um, Such people are, they flag in zeal. They have no sense of urgency about the Christian life. Uh, who have, they get comfortable with the surrounding culture, and the culture has its tentacles kind of reaching into your life constantly and distracting you from the things that really matter. and your zeal is, sa- is zapped, and that spreads to your family, and they begin to show this similar traits. And it's fascinating to to look at the family of Lot and uh, to see that though they are warned to escape the judgment and run and not look back, Lot's wife decides to look back and is caught up in the judgment in verse 26. And the significance of this is that her heart, although her body had left Sodom, her heart was still there. And though she is married to Lot, who is considered as a righteous man, she was she was gathered up into the judgment. Her heart was not given over to the Lord, but to the way of life she once had amongst that depraved culture. How easy it is to be married to someone who's a believer and be sympathetic to your spouse's life, spiritual life, but never to, to have had God deal with you in your own soul. Oh, such a man like Lot, yes, he can be saved. But his story, I think, reminds me of Paul's description of someone involved in church planting. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, he spoke about those who come and ch- plant churches. You know, uh, uh, somebody plants and somebody waters, but God makes the plant grow. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3? But then Paul says, All the work will be tested by fire. And that which remains will determine a reward. But Paul warns that there are some people whose work will be tested by fire and everything will be burned up. Though he himself will be saved, the, the individual will be saved. Nothing will remain of their lives because they have wasted their lives. Not used their lives for the glory of God. And they have built something for themselves that will never last in all eternity. That's Lot. Lot. He's been so affected by the culture around him that he's become ineffective in his life and in the lives of those nearest and dearest to him. The surrounding culture can dull our piety and our devotion to God. But lastly, let's not leave it there. God saves in answer to prayer. We've looked at Lot and his family and these two strangers, but in 27 to 29 we see Abraham coming back into the picture. Abraham who walked with God, who brought to God all his cares and concerns, who brought all his intellectual struggles with what God was saying. And now he is on the hillside where he was the afternoon before, looking down on Sodom and Gomorrah, which is now billowing plumes of smoke that are ascending from it. Because God has indeed come in judgment and destroyed the city and all that are in it. Except for one man and some of his family. And notice that verse 29 tells us the reason why that man was saved, why Lot was saved. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God remembered his friend Abraham. Abraham, who wrestled with God the day before on behalf of the city. If ten righteous people couldn't be found, uh, so the city uh, wouldn't be saved. But God still saved his own people, righteous Lot, because of the prayers of Abraham. Now, isn't that interesting? God saves. As people pray. Isn't that an incentive for us to pray? To pray for salvation? The salvation of our friends? Salvation of our families? To ask God for a town or city? That He might come in mercy to a town or city and, and save those who belong to Him? What an incentive? great thing. And to see God come in saving power and lead out a people that belong to him. Let's pray now. Father, we cry out to you, recognizing our own sin and our weakness. We have confessed our sins to you today already. We pray for more than simply that we receive forgiveness of our sins. But Lord, that you would change us to be faithful, ever increasingly faithful to you. And Lord, help us to be a people of prayer who will pray for those around us. Those whom we love and many of those we don't love who might be called, classed as our enemies. Lord we pray for them anyway help us to do that and may we see stand back as it were like Abraham and see you do great things for Jesus sake Amen